Amen. Now, here's what we need to just uh, be reminded of, okay? It would be a tragedy, but it would be highly possible at the same time for us to spend these weeks looking at the miracles of Jesus and, and studying miracles of Jesus and understanding all these miracles of Jesus and, and having a good uh, exegetical explanation and practical application and so on and so forth and just gaining a bunch of knowledge about miracles and then going home feeling like we've accomplished something. And uh, when in reality, if we're not doing everything that we do under the the recognition of the miracle-working God that we serve. And so my, my, my assumption is that there's people in this room right now, you need a miracle in your life. And God does miracles, and you should be praying for miracles and asking God to do a miracle in your life. And you don't want to learn about something that could be, uh, that is available to you and then just have a bunch of information, right? So... Let's remember that we're, we're, we want to understand these miracles because we serve a miracle-working God. And He, he hasn't uh, retired His uh, miracle power. Okay? Amen. I mean, every day we pass by Him. Uh, sometimes we miss Him because we're not looking for Him. We oftentimes aren't expecting anything out of the ordinary to happen. Some of us have been waiting so long, praying so hard that you're beginning to lose hope. But then there's these moments that come in our lives when everything comes into focus, when, we, uh, when we're faced with uh, a circumstance that's beyond the explanation of the laws of physics and beyond the explanation of the laws of logic. And the truth is is that uh, there's a lot of times in our life when we encounter things that we can't explain because there's a greater power at work in those situations. And that greater power is a loving God who sees us and He hears us and He's willing to interact with our lives. And He's doing it all the time. So let's keep that in mind as we study. Let's also realize that miracles are, they're always connected to people. They're always connected to people. And they always point to the love that God has for those people. See, there's no, there's no miracles. And, and some of you are like, well, duh. Well, not duh. Because God can do anything. And so think of all the miracles that God could do that had nothing to do with people. Like he could just show off his power and it wouldn't have anything to do with any of us, right? He could do all kinds of crazy stuff in the sky. He could do things on the earth. He could do, he could do all kinds of things that wouldn't have anything to do with us. But he doesn't do that. The miracles that are recorded in Scripture are connected to people for a reason, for a purpose. God doesn't do every miracle that's possible. No. He doesn't always do every miracle that's requested or maybe that we might deem that's needed. But He does miracles. And the real message behind Jesus' miracles is to declare to human history that He is God. See, He connects them to people. They're always pointing us to the love that He has for those people. But the message that they're declaring over the top of everything is that He's God. And so when we look at the miracles of the Lord Jesus, we, we need to do more than just wonder at His power. It's more than just going, wow, God can do that. Wow, God did that. That's part of it, but it's more than that. We need to see His miracles as pictures of God's grace and action, ultimately pointing us to salvation in Christ.
That's what he's doing. You see, God wants us to know that he's God. And why does he want us to know that he's God? See, all of these things are just layers that connect one to the next to the next. The whole point of him revealing himself is to point us to salvation. We also need to see them as pointers to his purpose for our lives. That when, when God's supernatural power intersects with our lives and things happen in our lives that we can't explain or that we know God did, they may not be miraculous. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're just things that we know God did. But yet, they're there. And the fact of the matter is, why are they there? They're there because maybe it's because He loves us or maybe it's because He just wants to do that maybe it's because he uh, is revealing to us his purpose in our lives he's leading us he's doing something in our lives that have something to do with what God desires our lives to be so we're going to read in Matthew chapter 8 so you can uh, if you want to you can grab the pew bible and turn to page eleven, nineteen, or I put the verses here we can read them But I want you to understand that what happens in Matthew chapter 8, the context is this is immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So Jesus preaches the first sermon. This sermon that I always refer to the Sermon on the Mount as imagine, uh, which is easy for me to do, but you can still imagine. Imagine a sermon that has been brewing in the making for all eternity. I mean, that's just crazy. So, you know, for, for all eternity, God has been waiting for the fullness of time to come. And then when the fullness of time comes, boom, the sequence of events happen. And Jesus is born and he lives and he grows up and all these things happen. But there's this first message. And it's the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's just why that's such a mind-blowing sermon. And just following that, so he preaches the sermon, and then the Bible says, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So there's lots of people. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, But go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only Speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled, and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's speaking about the Jews. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now, here's the first question we should ask. Why does Jesus start with two miracles that have to do with two people that the Jews hated or rejected? So following the Sermon on the Mount, two miracles, both of them have to do with two people the Jews despised, a leper and a centurion. Now the thrust of these miracles is really the word hope. That's the thrust. If you look at both of these situations, both of these circumstances, both of, 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 of what 
is presented to Jesus. They're both in the context of hope. And if we're going to have a brief conversation about hope, we need to understand that it's the confident expectation for the future. That's just a simple explanation of what hope is. And so you have this leper who's hopelessly physically ill. It's 100% terminal. You have this other man who's, uh, who is desperately hoping that Jesus will heal somebody that's close and important to him. And when you think about hope, you need to think about it in two terms. Culturally, just like it is today, hope is based on chance. But theologically, hope is based on assurance. And those are two very different things. So hope for a Christian is very different from hope in a secular context. All right, let's look at these two miracles and how uh, hope can teach us. All right, so the first miracle, hope causes us to look past our brokenness. To look past our brokenness. So Jesus has just come down from the mountain. And there's a large crowd. It says great multitudes followed him. And so in the context of this, this sermon that's been preached, all of these people, all this attention that's been gathered, he's coming down off the mountain, and then in comes this leper, this person who is the epitome of unclean. And the fact that he has run up amongst them is already an, uh, symbolic of what's going on because it would have been absolutely illegal, according to Leviticus 13, for him to be even around people. Many of you know that someone who had leprosy and been declared unclean couldn't even be near anyone. If anyone came near them, they had to scream, you know, unclean, unclean to warn them to get away. They weren't allowed to be in close proximity to anybody. So when you're just looking at this on the surface, you realize there couldn't have been a worse person to run up to Jesus from a PR standpoint. There's a big crowd. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of hoopla. And then here comes this person that is absolutely despised, breaking every uh, code of, of morality and ethics and running up into the crowd and getting amongst people. I was thinking today about how over the years I've preached on uh, this passage before and Never before have I thought, you know, and there he is just running in there and exposing everybody. He's not social distancing. The fool ain't wearing a mask. So as a leper, let's just think about this. First of all, physically, he was hopeless. I mean, there's no medication. There's no shot doctor. I mean, there's no procedure. You get leprosy, you die, period socially, he's totally isolated. Who knows how long it's been since he's been around his family, uh, been around his loved ones, seen his kids, seen his wife, who knows, you know, uh, been around anybody socially. He's totally isolated. Then emotionally, he was completely shamed because it was so shameful. Now, you have to remember the Jews were completely convinced that when a person got leprosy, that was a result of their sin. And, you know, they had reason to do that because multiple times in the Old Testament, people got leprosy. Remember, uh, uh, Miriam got leprosy. Remember, Naaman got leprosy. And remember, their leprosy was, uh, you know, they, they got Naaman's servant got his leprosy uh, as a consequence of his actions. It went from Naaman, was healed, and then the, his servant got his leprosy. So it was, it was punishment for... Uh, sin. And so they were completely convinced of this. So emotionally, he's completely shamed, you know, because him and everybody else think that somehow he deserves that. And so he's shamed for that. And then religiously, he's completely banished. Now, remember this culture, everything in this culture, in a Jewish culture, revolved around the temple, revolved around the synagogue, revolved around religion. And so here you've got this person who in every sphere of his life, a leper was, social, uh, was a social pariah, an 
outsider resigned to looking in but never being in. He couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't go near the temple. He couldn't, he couldn't go before a priest. He couldn't worship in any way. I mean, he was completely banished from every arena of life. Lord, if you are willing, he says, you can make me clean. So here's what the man knows. The man, the leper, knows he's not addressing an ordinary person, right? You can tell that by what he says. You wouldn't say, you can make me clean unless you already had some idea that this person was, was not normal and had the capacity to do things beyond what average people could understand or do. His only question was about the Lord's willingness, not his ability. You know, if you're willing, that's the only question. It's not can you, it's will you. And anybody in his situation would be asking, will you, even if they knew somebody could, because they're in such bad shape, they're so undeserving, they're so shamed, so isolated, so hopeless, that, you know, it's their only shot. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus, we've pointed this out a couple times in this series already, he puts his hand on the man and he touches him. And what's interesting to me is that we know Jesus doesn't have to be present in order to heal somebody because the very next miracle that we're about to look at Jesus heals the centurion's servant without ever going there, right? And so that he, can, he can heal without physical touch, without, but yet he chooses to do that. And again, I just want you to see that the miracles are connected to people. You can't see a miracle of God without seeing the compassion of God at the same time. Those things are constantly uh, intertwined. And so he, he touches this leper which would have been absolute shock and horror to the crowd. The people present would have just, I'm sure, just audibly screamed when he touched him. The fact that he was that close to him was already just insanity. But when he touched him, it was just crazy. Of everything to a Jew that is unclean, which was a lot of things, nothing was more unclean than a leper. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, I wonder how long had it been since this man had felt the touch of another hand? How long had it been since, since uh, a healthy hand had touched him? Think of... Don't overlook the the magnitude of the moment. Think of what it must have felt like for that man to be touched by somebody. See, things that we just take for granted. Now, we we need to hear tonight that Jesus will touch anything he has created. And he's created everything. See, he'll, he'll touch anything he's created. He, he's not afraid to touch things. He has authority over those things, but he does it. He does it. So no one is ever too dirty or no one has ever gone too far. That's impossible. Because his authority knows no bounds. He's not... He's not bound by any fear or reservation, hesitation, any of that. Jesus says, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Again, I point out every time we're having these conversations about miracles, it's instantaneous and it's complete. And some of you are like, well, why is that so important? Why do you keep reminding us that or saying that? Well, 
And then there's those of you in the room that maybe have some charismatic friends or charismatic, charismaniac uh, family members or crazy people that you've been talking to or witnessing to that are always carrying on about all kinds of crazy stuff that's unbiblical. And if you are, then you know what I'm about to say. They're always messing up things that have to do with healings. It's like the guy that uh, my wife, well, I didn't go because I'm not going. She goes to a garage sale, and here's how Tony gets stuck. Then she buys something that I have to then get in my truck and go to this place and pick up. So now I'm at the garage sale where I don't want to be. And the reason I don't want to be there is because guess what happens? Exactly what I was afraid of. So this guy comes up to me and says, I know you. And I'm like, here we go. And so long story short, he starts telling me how he's a pastor and how God's called him to do this and that. And now normally I'd be happy about this, but I'm not going to give you the visual here, but I'm already trying to get out of here as fast as I can. Then he proceeds to tell me that God has healed him seven times. Seven times. Seven times God's healed him of cancer. Seven times. He tells me all seven body parts that had cancer and all seven times that God healed him. And I'm just going, seriously? So you're telling me that you had cancer of the whatever, who knows. God healed that, but he didn't heal the cancer that was on the other six things. Then he went back and healed that thing, but he left the other five. Then the four, then the three, then the two. And then finally, at some point, he finally healed the last thing. Does that even make sense to anybody? That's just ridiculous. It's absurd. It's unbiblical. It's not true. That's not what happened. If God healed him, all of his cancer would be gone. That's the only way God heals. is instantaneous and complete. That's what he does. If there's a physical healing, which God does, a miraculous physical healing, it's instantaneous and complete. You can't just make up things and then attribute them to God. That doesn't work like that. So I'm always reminding you, it's instant and it's complete. That's how it is. Verse 4, so Jesus says, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, this seems strange for a lot of reasons. Now, this is the only time that Jesus does something uh, and then says don't tell anybody. But here's what's very odd about this. First of all, The healing that he just did, he did publicly, right? And there's there's tons of people around that all see this happen. So everyone sees him do this, and then he says, hey, by the way, don't go tell anybody. Doesn't that seem strange? Well, not really. You just have to think about it. You have to just understand what's really going on here. Okay, there's... That's... That would be to miss the point. Understand, Jesus healed him medically, physically, right? So he, he no longer had leprosy in his body at any... See, it's not like his arm was all ate up with scabs and scars and Jesus touched him and it healed, but his toe was still rotting off of leprosy and later on he died because Jesus forgot to heal his toe. No. All the leprosy is gone. Medically, he's 100% healed, right? But there's still the issue of social and religious healing. And understand, Jesus cares about the totality of people. This isn't just about the fact that he has leprosy. Jesus cares about him as a person, socially, religiously, in all aspects of his life. Jesus loves him. He cares about it. And so, what would have been the normal... Well, I mean, if had Jesus not said anything to him, if Jesus would have just healed him and not said anything, 
what would the man have done? Immediately. What would you have done? He would have immediately ran to his house and went to his family and got his kids and went to all those people that he loves that he hasn't seen in a long time. That's exactly what he would have done, right? And then he would have been running around, you know, and they would have had a big celebration and, you know, everybody would have got a sleeve of Oreo cookies and it would have been a big party because he had leprosy and now he's healed. And that's what Jesus is warning against. There's a, there's a time for that, but before we get to that, let's do things the correct way. You can't just start celebrating socially and religiously until you, in fact, you can't even celebrate religiously until you've been restored according to the custom. So here's what he did. There would have been a tremendous temptation for this man to go immediately to celebrate with his family and his friends. Well, of course there would have been. But Jesus' counsel is to be obedient to God's law. And that makes perfect sense because Jesus wants him to do the right things in the right order so that he can fully experience the freedom that Jesus has given him. You see, if he doesn't go to the priest and do exactly what Jesus said, if the priest doesn't declare him now clean, then He's, gonna, he's not going to be able to worship with his family. He's going to be socially, now he's going to not have leprosy, but he's still going to suffer consequences as if he does. And his life isn't going to be full like the way it needs to be. So Jesus specifically tells him what to do so that his life can be restored fully in all aspects. What a great and loving and kind thing for God to do. Yes. And so also... What's being accomplished by him going straight to show himself to the priests? Well, on top of that, it would declare proof not only that of the completeness of his healing, but also the lordship of Jesus over disease. So Jesus is using this healing in this man to not only fully and completely restore his life, but also to send a message to those in religious authority, just another proof of his lordship over disease. All right. Second miracle and the more extensive one. Here we're going to see hope causes us to submit to his authority. Hope causes us to submit to his authority. So the first one is we look past our brokenness. See this, this leper has been in this total exile for who knows how long, hopeless, and probably, uh, you know, it, you would have had a hard time convincing him to hope or, or, or believe in anything. But in this moment, he looks past all of his brokenness and pierces through all the barriers to get to Jesus and ultimately ends up getting healed. Now, what drove him to run through that crowd and to run up to Jesus and to drop down before him and to ask him to heal him is hope. If he wouldn't have had hope that Jesus could do it, he would never have done it. He was propelled forward against all odds by hope. Now we're going to see that hope not only does that, but it also causes us to submit to authority. And a lot of people would miss this. So verse 5, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, there's his home base, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Hmm. All right. The first principle I want you to consider is that the value of trials is the lesson that we're utterly dependent. See, when we go through hardship in our life, the trials that we face, there's value in suffering. There's value in trials. There's value in desperation and need. And the value, one of the central values in trials that we face is this lesson that we learn that we are dependent because it is utterly important for every Jesus follower to be very aware that they're totally dependent. Because if you're not dependent, well, then you've got a whole another issue that we're going to get to in a moment. Now, a centurion would have been the commander of the 
Roman garrison that would have been posted at Capernaum. So Capernaum wasn't this giant hustling and bustling city necessarily, but it would have been at least 80 soldiers. And so this man would have been the highest ranking military official in this city. So he would have been not only known by everyone, but he would have had great power and great authority. And depending on his demeanor and the way that he used his authority and power would have determined whether he was greatly feared or greatly respected or how that was. But listen, he was somebody who had a lot of authority and everybody knew who he was. Now let's think about who, who, what we could say about him. Well, first of all, he's a Gentile. So he's not a Jew. So the first miracle was, with, was, a, was a Jewish person. This is a Gentile. He's a Roman. Next, he's a Roman. Thirdly, he's an oppressor. See, not only is he Roman, but he's a, a Roman leader who is oppressing the Jewish people, to which Jesus is obviously one of them. So it's almost like we flip the script upside down in this one where he sees himself. See, the, the, the centurion sees himself as the outsider and Jesus as the insider. Because Jesus is a Jew and Jesus is surrounded by Jews mostly. And so he's a Roman and so normally he would have authority over the Jews, and he would, but in this situation he needs something from Jesus who happens to be a Jew, and so now the power structure is inverted. And he finds himself on the outside. Now here's how we know this, because the exact same uh, miracle is taught in Luke chapter 7, and here's what Luke tells us. The Luke gives us extra information. It says, so when he heard about Jesus, talking about the centurion, he sent elders of the Jews to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, so the leaders, the Jewish leaders that the centurion sent come to Jesus, they begged Jesus earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this for was deserving. So they were, they were on the centurion's behalf, For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So that tells us that he was not feared, but he was respected and loved because he was a benevolent, good ruler over the Jews. And so the Jews loved him. And so Luke gives us this extra information that they actually, the centurion sent a delegation of Jewish leaders in front of him to go and to convince Jesus that he was worthy of this miracle that he was requesting for his servant. So we know that someone told the centurion about Jesus because he obviously wouldn't have done any of this had he not known that. Uh, We know that, that he had heard about the healing power that Jesus has or he wouldn't have done any of this. And there's no doubt in his mind, just like in the leper's mind, that Jesus could Heal his servant. Because that's clear by what he says. The issue is not ability. The issue is willingness. Right? So, the question that I have is, why does the centurion send Jewish elders ahead? Think about it. Think about his mindset. Think about this powerful Roman centurion who says, whatever he says, you jump immediately. But he sends people ahead, which tells us something about him and what how he perceives himself as opposed to Jesus. Why doesn't he just go to Jesus himself? And introduce himself and say, listen, I'm a Roman centurion and I need you to help me. Why doesn't he do that? Well, clearly he doesn't believe. He doesn't think that Jesus would help a person like him. Just like most people didn't believe in the first miracle that Jesus would help a person like that. 
See, if he thought Jesus would help him, he wouldn't have sent a delegation. So that's very important to understand his posture. See, he's not a religious person. He's not Jewish. He's an outsider. He also feels unworthy. Two completely opposite people, but yet they both feel unworthy. See, just like the leper, his question was, not about, was about the Lord's willingness, not his ability. And so you, you, you need to understand, Jesus had just preached the Sermon on the Mount, right? And what does Jesus say right off the bat in the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus just teach prior to these two interactions? The very first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. See, I think the, one of the first indications that a person's heart is ready for the gospel, is ready for an encounter with Jesus, is that they're, they're poor in spirit. Because what would be the opposite? What, would, what do you think would have happened to a centurion who would have thought, i tell you what's about to happen. This Jewish cat is about to heal my servant because I said so because I'm in authority and he's going to do what I say because everybody does what I say. Now, if he would have rolled up on Jesus and said, hey, heal my servant, how do you think that would have went down? See, that would be the opposite of poor in spirit. But here he is. He, he doesn't think he deserves it. He feels unworthy. He's an outsider. And this is the principle that we all need to take away from this little piece of information. It's very important. Entitlement is the adversary of the gospel. It always is the adversary of the gospel. Anytime you or me come to God with any sense of entitlement, it is not going to go well for us. God does not respond to entitlement. Ever. And some people get very confused about this. In several specific ways. I'll mention one. See, when I speak of entitlement, what I'm speaking of is you, you don't come to God demanding something. You don't come to God deserving something. You don't do that. That will not work for you. And a lot of confusion is uh, to, with regards to this issue happens around, for example, passages of Scripture that say things like, we come boldly to the throne of grace. Yeah, we come boldly. What does that mean? That means that we boldly go before God. What, what are we bold in? Are we bold in, in the fact that we deserve something? No. We're bold in the fact of our knowledge that He loves us. So you better understand what boldness means. Because if you're bold in the wrong thing, there's something wrong. So... Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now that is a fascinating passage of Scripture. The first thing I want you to do is look in verse 9. 
And I want you to put a circle around the word also. For I also. That's the key to understanding what's about to come unfolded for us. He is very perceptive. He says, I, for I also am a man under authority. Now think of who he's talking to. You're asking this man who has the power You just said you believe he has the power not only to heal your servant, but to heal your servant without even going to where he is. Okay? And yet he's declaring this understanding that the person who has this power is under authority, which is amazing. Think about it. None none of us would just come to this conclusion on our own. None of us would think that this person has the power power to defy all logic and all laws of physics, but he's under the authority. Well, whose authority is he under? And this is a person who, who, who is not a religious person. He's not a Jew. He hasn't read the Torah. He doesn't know what the laws of God are. And yet he's keenly aware of this reality that so many of us today miss. In John 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, he says, I can do nothing myself, do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. And on and on and on it goes. Jesus is a man who is 100% under authority and who wants us to understand that he's under authority. And yet so many people miss this. And here is an irreligious Roman outsider who gets this. See, the principle is so simple. Every parent, tune in. Because I don't know, you know, you got this grid of things that you want to make sure your children understand and know. Well, I'm about to tell you one that you need to move right to the top. Wherever it is on the grid, take it out and put it at the very top, okay? This principle right here. Anyone who is not under authority is headed for destruction. You have no chance. You have no chance. If you do not teach your children to respect, first of all, your authority, what hope do you have that they're going to operate effectively under God's authority or any other authority? And what happens to every single human being that grows up in loving homes where they go to church and they say grace before they eat and they go to VBS and they're in Awana and they do all these things, but they don't respect authority. It's never worked out. Not one time. Not one time. And you know what we do? We just brush it off. We think, well, I'm doing all these other things right, and they just, you know, got an attitude problem or this or that or the other. And let me tell you something. It's not going to go well. It's never going well. And it's not going to go well for you. It is absolutely essential. You cannot, you cannot function as a Christian. Cannot. Unless you can function happily and healthily under authority. You can't function as a human being. You can't flourish in any way. It will not work. It can only lead to destruction. Now think about this. Here's this man who gets this principle. Now, see, there's so many people. I encounter people all the time in desperate need of hope, in desperate need of help, in desperate need of God to intersect with their lives and do something great. They're they're in desperate need of it. But they never get it. They're in desperate need of it, but they never get help. They never get the help. Why? Because being desperately in need of something 
is not the key. The key is being desperate. You can be desperately in need of something and not be desperate at all. And that's what I see a lot of. Do you understand how that works? I'm going to show you. So maybe let's say that you're in desperate need of of God to... Resurrect your marriage. But are you desperate? See, I talk to people who are in desperate need of God to, to do something in their marriage. But what if, who, who have they talked to about it? What have they done about it? What are they? And so then I'm talking to them and I'm like, well, what have you been doing? And then they answer me, well... You're not desperate. Does that sound... And then I'm like, does that sound desperate to you? Well, no. What What would a person in your exact situation do if they were desperate? That's what I'm asking you. Because see, we're, we're, we're all in desperate need of something. So my question for you tonight is, whatever you're in desperate need of, what would a person in your exact situation do if they were desperate? And is that different than what you're doing? See, I talk to people all the time that are in desperate need of God to heal them of their secret sin. Well, then why is your sin still a secret? Because you're not desperate. See, you're not serious because you're the only one that knows about it. If you were desperate, you know what? People who could help you would know about it. Isn't that true? Is that not true? Have you ever seen a desperate person? Is a desperate person introverted, quiet, shy? Huh? Have you ever seen one? Everyone around them knows they're desperate. And especially the people who need to know know that they're desperate. Isn't that right? People who can help them. People who can... So the thing is, is that you may be desperately in need of something, but you're not desperate. And that's why nothing changes. And you say, well, how could I be desperately in need of something and not be desperate? Because your pride overrules your desperation. You're more prideful than you are in need. See, that's what you think. You don't, you're worried about what people think. You think that leper was worried about what people think? No, he was desperate. You think the, the, the woman with the issue of blood that burst through the crowd and touched the hem of the, car, the garment of Jesus, you think she was worried about what people think? No, she was desperate. You, you think the, the man whose child was possessed by a demon, you think that he cared what people think? No. You think he was worried that people were going to find out that his kid was possessed by a demon? No, he was desperate. There's, there's power in desperation. See, oftentimes what you need, God's fully willing to give, but you haven't received it because you're not ready to receive it. See, because if you're not desperate, what does that mean? There's still some shred in you that thinks you can solve your own problem. And guess what? You know what God says? Well, go on with your bad self. You think you can fix it? Have at it. How long you been trying? How's that working for you? Poor in spirit. See? Poor in spirit. It means something. It teaches us something. See, so oftentimes people get disappointed because they want Jesus to fix their problems the way they want Him to. That means I'm not desperate because I want Jesus to fix it this way. See, I want you to heal me of this thing, but I don't want anybody to find out about it. Oh, really? Well, sorry. You got to walk in the light as he's in the light. You don't get to call. That's entitlement. We, you don't call the shots. You don't show up at the foot of Jesus and start, you know, reading out your prescription for how you want him to. I mean, what are we doing? Jesus has zero concern for our agenda. 
Not because he's not loving or compassionate, because he's, but because he, he's only about the will of his Father. See, he's about the will of his Father because the Father's will is always the right will, the, always the perfect will. So for Jesus to pander to our agenda would make Jesus do something that was less than best for us. It would make Jesus do something that would be against the grain of who he is. He doesn't do that. See, honestly, that's how you get healed of cancer seven times, right there. That's exactly how it happens. Of course, it didn't happen, but because you decided that you had this, you know, you had this problem here and he was going to heal that and then this one over here. And then, I mean, you know, and like Jesus is like your puppet just doing all the things you're telling him to do. Well, that's not how that works. See, it's not really complicated. That's what I want you to, I want you to be filled with hope tonight. It's not really complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. Broken people, me and you, broken people just need to get to Jesus. Once our agenda has been replaced with desperation and trust. That's it. That's it. You just need to get to Jesus. I mean, whatever you are in desperate need of tonight, you just need to get to Jesus. Just, just get to Him. Get to Him without any agenda. Get to Him fully convinced of His ability. No prescription for how he's going to do it. No, no, you know, nothing hindering your desperation. I cannot emphasize this enough. If someone in your exact situation was desperate, how would they look different than you? That's what you need to do. Now notice in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Now you should circle the word marveled and then you should put like some arrows pointing to it and make like a neon sign around it and, and anything you can to draw attention to that word because that is an amazing thing. He marveled, and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This is a mind-blowing verse. And here's the first reason why. Why would Jesus marvel at anything? Can we just stop and get our heads around that for a second? Any, the, the fact that the Bible says Jesus marveled blows my mind. Wait, 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 what? You're telling me that the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe, the sovereign king, marveled? This has got to be telling us something big, I'm telling you. He marveled. Thumadzu in the Greek. How many times is the word thumadzu in the Greek? Is that verb to marvel in the Greek? Two times. Only two times. And it's two completely opposite sides of the same coin, which is fascinating. You got right here, he marveled. And then you got Mark chapter 6, verse 6 that says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. So here in this passage, he marvels at the faith of this centurion. And then in Mark chapter 6, because he's in Nazareth where they've known him all of his life and seen him all of his life, he marveled at their unbelief. Fascinating. So that means there's two times in Scripture that Jesus said, Wow, 
Two times. Two times that Jesus said, wow. I think we should pay attention to that. I think that's important. So what caused Jesus to marvel? What are these two things? Well, first of all, those who believe when it's not expected that they would. And those who disbelieve when there's every reason they should. So you've got Matthew chapter 8, and then you've got Mark 6. Those who believe when it's not expected that they would. The shocking belief in an unexpected situation. Now I'm thinking of all the situations that Jesus encountered people that believed. And to me, they're all shocking. Aren't they shocking? Like it's not shocking to you that Jesus walks up to Matthew at the tax collector's booth. This guy is rich beyond belief. He's got the dream job of the century. He's got the 401k. He he couldn't spend all the money he's made for 10 generations. Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Packs up, kicks the junk to the side, throws it out and says, I'm in. That's shocking to me. You got guys who spent their whole life fishing, their families fish, uh, all they know is fishing. They're on their great-grandfather's boats that have hand them down, hand them down, hand them down, and the nets and all the stuff. Jesus walks up, follow me. They just leave it all and follow him. That's a, nope, Jesus didn't marvel at any of that. Didn't marvel at any of that. He marveled at this centurion right here. This he marveled at. And he marveled that the people in his hometown, the people closest to him, the people in his own family, it's one of my favorite truths in the world. It's really encouraging to me. If you know anything about my family. Rejected him. I'm the only Christian in my family. The only one. I mean, we've been talking about this for 25 years. Some of you have been praying for my mom for 25 years. Only one. Oh, we make a little headway here and then, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But I mean, that won't even acknowledge that I'm a pastor. Don't even even want to talk about it. Nazareth. See, at Thanksgiving, I'll go home to Nazareth. I'm encouraged by that. Those who disbelieve when there's every reason they should. I mean, I'm sitting at the table at Thanksgiving. I'm going, you raised me. You know me. You know all them things. I tortured you all your life growing up. You know me. You know the teenage Tony. You saw the terror. I saw the terror in your eyes. You were there. With the police, you were there with all the, all the moments you were there. And this isn't proof enough to you that God's some miraculous God? Like, you can't get this together? Nope, can't get it. I marvel. Hmm. I wonder this, does Jesus ever marvel at you and me? Does he ever marvel at us? Is he? I think when he sees people trusting him in the midst of extreme suffering, just hardships. brokenness but they trust him see i thought about what makes me marvel that's what makes me marvel i marvel every time i stand up here and preach and i'm and i'm preaching to faces that have gone through just horrific pain and suffering and you see most people that go through suffering they they retreat but there's these special people that it's like the harder things get, the worse things, the more they press in. That makes me marvel. 
it just is, it's just amazing. I think those are things that make God marvel. The person who, who just loves God in the midst of, you, that you know they're broken over their wayward child or their grandkid with pediatric cancer or whatever the case may be. And yet they just praise God in the midst of their suffering. The mom who presses into God in the midst of her miscarriage. The dad who presses in in the midst of his pain and agony. I think, I think Jesus also marvels at people who sit under biblical preaching week after week, month after month, year after year. And your lives are unchanged. I think he marvels at that. He marvels at people that are in proximity to the gospel all the time. And yet they live like people in Nazareth. See, Nazareth is a warning to us that familiarity can breed spectacular unbelief. Spectacular unbelief. But on the other side, the centurion is a ray of hope that even the most unlikely among us sometimes believe. And we've got to remember that. See, this place has a lot of miraculous things going on. And the reason that it does is, is not because of... Uh, it's not because of anything that I do or anything that any of the other pastors do, or any, but it's because of the, the, the way we position ourselves in the kingdom of God. I'll show you in a minute. See, Jesus then said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so it will be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very hour. So, so what I want you to see is that the servant's healing was not caused by the centurion's faith. It's just another lie that wacko people try to convince gullible young believers. No, it was caused by the Lord's power. That's what it was caused by. The reason that that you haven't received what it is you want has nothing to do with you not having enough faith. That's That's not what it is at all. And something that does happen is not because of the faith that you did have. It's because of the power that God has. So here's the takeaways. And this will explain what I'm talking about. So the takeaways are this. First of all, the leper. Well, he's a Jewish outcast. He's incurable and he's shunned by all. That's the leper. Second of all, you have the centurion. He's a Gentile insider, powerful and respected in the community. So you have these two opposite people. Both receive healing from Jesus. So what is the message in that? What is the principle for us? That it doesn't matter how others see us. So please remember the conversation we just had about desperation. Doesn't matter how people see us. What matters is how we see the Lord and how the Lord sees us. That's what matters. You see, we have a focus problem. We're so focused on all the wrong things. When you focus on what other people think, you have completely missed it. See, I think the greatest thing about this church, at least one of the greatest things about this church, is that is, is when we get to hear people who, who come here out of dark and hard, shameful things and feel fully welcomed and accepted and received. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than that. And so here's what that does. That positions us to see God do a lot of miraculous stuff. Because if you don't do that, then you miss out on God's miraculous power. But when you do that, which you do a great job of that, we get to see 
God miraculously transform lives right before us. Because if they're not here, then we wouldn't get to see it. But in order for them to be here, there's got to be this spirit of welcomeness and openness. It's, it's essential. We've got to have the right focus. So, he's a Savior whose grace touches the untouchable and embraces the unacceptable. That's what he does. That's what he does. So see, both of these men have perfectly formed understandings about Jesus. See, they both came, remember, confident of his ability, but shaky on his willingness, right? They both came with faith and trust that he was able to meet their needs. But here's the thing. They both knew that they could do nothing to deserve his help. They were desperate. They were desperate. So, here's what we want to have when we approach God. First of all, we want to have empty hands. Empty hands. We want to come to God with empty hands. We want to have confidence that He will hear and respond. God always hears. He hears everything that you say to Him. He hears everything that you ask Him for. The fact that He hasn't done the things that you want Him to do has nothing to do with... It is, has zero to do with Him not hearing you. He hears. And He always responds. And sometimes what you consider a lack of response is His response. But understand, He is hearing and He is responding. And you need to have confidence in that. When you come to God, you need to know that He hears. That's boldness in the right thing. And then you need to trust in His goodness. You can't just trust that He's God. Lots of people believe that He's God. That doesn't, that's not what, what you need. You don't need to just believe that He's God. You need to know that He's God, but that He's good. That He's good. That whatever He does is good. So if He doesn't do what you want Him to do the way he want, you want Him to do it, then it's better than what you would want. Because he's good. He's always good. Always good. See, if we're not moving toward the hurting and the broken, then we're not following Jesus. We're following the world. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. So you see, the two things we need to be aware of tonight as we leave here is, number one, we need to be aware of our need for desperation, and then we need to be aware of our need to be about people who are in desperation. Those two things. I want to stay in a dependent, desperate need for God to move in my life, and I also want to keep my life open to those that are in desperate need of him, which is takes both of those things take, take challenge because it's not easy, is it? No, it's not easy. Desperate people, man, are messy and, and hard and you got to get mixed up in all kinds of hard things and get out of your comfort zone, but that's okay. That's where the miraculous things happen, amen? So let's be desperate and then let's be about desperate people. And then we'll see the power of God working all around us.